I'm delighted to kick off this latest Master Investor podcast. I'm going to be joined here by Phil Kent, who is the lead manager of the GCP Infrastructure Investment Trust. Uh, this is a trust which has a market capitalization of around uh, just under 900 million and assets of 1.1 billion. Uh, it's been listed on the London market since 2010. And it's distinguished from uh, most of its rivals in the peer group by the fact that it actually, instead of owning infrastructure assets, it uh, lends money to them, principally uh, renewable energy operators and uh, a number of other, which we'll be talking about in in due course. So it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast, Phil. Uh, Let's just kick off with a very kind of broad question. Just in your own words, define exactly what it is that the Trust is is setting out to do and uh, what a potential appeal to investors is. Thank you, Jonathan. So the fund is a UK-based infrastructure fund that invests in infrastructure assets that benefit from some form of public sector-backed revenue stream. So everything that the fund invests in has, in some shape or form, been supported by UK government policies that seek to promote that type of infrastructure being funded. As you mentioned, uh, the fund focuses on debt, which I think distinguishes us from a number of the peers that are are more equity focused in this space, albeit we do have some equity type exposures in the renewables part of our portfolio that we can come on to discuss. Um, In terms of what we're trying to do for our investors, I think there's three main things, the first of which is income. Um, Income, I think, has been a, a driver of why infrastructure as an asset class generally has been attractive to investors as, a, as an alternative to traditional income sources. The fund has a target dividend of seven pence per share. And that's been a level that we paid last year and intend to maintain in the, the medium term. We think that level of income relative to the underlying risk in the portfolio has historically been attractive and remains attractive where we sit today. The second thing that we do for our shareholders is invest across a diversified pool of underlying assets. Again, I think that distinguishes us from some of the peer group that have a specific asset focus, whether that's PFI or a specific renewable asset class within their funds. Historically, that diversification has been really important to us as we've seen different asset classes change, in particular, um, risks mature or competition in asset classes grow, discount rates have come down. And rather than being obliged to continue to invest in those assets, because that's what the fund purpose is, we've been able to move into new interesting areas. So I think we'd characterize ourselves as being an early mover into a number of sectors in the UK. And I think that's benefited us in terms of an ability to sustain the level of income and, and stick to the original investment policy. I think the final thing I'll say on on what we offer is capital preservation. So being debt, we are focused on downside protection rather than perhaps creating or or factoring into valuations lots of potential future equity-like upsides. I think infrastructure as an asset class is defensive. It benefits from real physical assets that have an inherent value and long-term contracted cash flows that underpin the cash generation from those assets. So a defensive asset class and within that, our approach to investing is also defensive. Perhaps the final thing I'll say is uh, ESG characteristics and ESG wasn't really a thing when this fund IPO'd uh, going back 12 years or so. But fundamentally, where we sit today, we have a portfolio of 1.1 billion, as you mentioned, that fundamentally all achieve some form of social or environmental purpose. So we're actively working on how we capture the data relating to those positive benefits, how we get that independently verified and, and presented to our investors. But we think there's a really positive ESG story underpinning the portfolio as a whole. So these are all good, positive uh, reasons for looking at your investment trust. 
I think it's fair to say that the uh, progression of this trust has all been uh, steady progress over a number of years, but you've had to confront some uh, specific challenges like everybody has. You had the pandemic, which I think did have an impact on you. We can come on and talk about that. Uh, and then this year, of course, we've moved into an, another uh, new market environment or potentially new market environment of rising inflation, uh, the war in Ukraine and higher interest rates. And as a result of that, you know, your shares, which have been Historically, have traded at a premium, tended to trade at a premium, but the obvious attractions you've got have uh, have moved out to a discount of around uh, 12, 13% as of the day we're recording this. So you're lending money. Uh, let's just ask you some questions about that. So basically, the kind of money that you're lending in most cases uh, is fixed rate lending. Is that right? Correct. Rather than floating yes. rate lending? Yes. Okay. So in an environment when we've got rising interest rates like the one we've seen, you would expect that to have an impact on the demand for the kind of things you're doing, but also the uh, the valuation of the things that you're doing. Is that a fair comment? Yes, that's absolutely fair. And I think you know, we do have the challenge in the current higher interest rate environment. And I think this is a risk we've acknowledged for a long time that with a, a portfolio of fixed rate debt in a higher interest rate environment on a relative basis, potentially this portfolio gets less attractive. And that's not necessarily something I can really argue with. I think that protections that we have are that just over 50% of the debt in the portfolio has some form of inflation linkage. So in a higher inflationary environment, we would expect the level of income to be generated by the underlying portfolio of investments to increase. We have seen that come through in the NAV over the last six months or so. There's been an uplift in respect of the March ABR forecast, which is what we incorporate into our short-term inflation assumptions. So the benefit of that has flown through to NAV increases. And similarly, we'd expect another benefit, I think, given the OBR's recent publication off the back of the, the budget that's just occurred. So there is some level of inflation protection and to the extent that higher inflation is driving the rate environment that we experience today, I think there is some sort of hedge into that risk. I think the other thing I would say is that the portfolio is not static. We expect to receive somewhere between 30 to 50 million pounds of cash back each year as part of scheduled repayments of the underlying loan book. That's available for us to reinvest at the prevailing market rates at, at the time. So there will be a natural reset over time, albeit I acknowledge that's not going to happen overnight. There are cases, and there's been a number of examples in recent years where we've done this, where we can accelerate that turnover of the portfolio. Going back to last year, for example, we disposed of one asset and reinvested that in into another asset, and we refinanced a portion of our portfolio of supported living assets, so releasing around 40 million to, to redeploy. So as well as a scheduled repayment, we can, in some cases, look to proactively restructure the portfolio to reset the rate or whatever the prevailing rate is. So Whilst your comment is absolutely fair, and I think that's largely driving the the discount that you rightly observe, I think there are some things that we can do, and indeed we are doing, to manage that position. In terms of the inflation protection you're talking about, you say 50% has some partial inflation protection. Uh, what is the kind of nature of that inflation protection? How significant is it in terms of you know, percentage difference to the uh, interest rate or whatever it is? How you incorporate that into the uh, contracts you have with these people? It varies quite a lot across the portfolio. Um, there's probably a couple of themes that I can try and draw out. The first is where there's explicit linkage in a coupon to an inflation index. So, for example, on the supported living social housing portfolio, the interest rate is explicitly linked to CPI on an annual basis, so it will change annually. In respect of some of the renewables portfolio, where we have more of an equity-like exposure to the underlying projects, there is the direct linkage to our returns to the underlying inflation in subsidies, 
and costs and wholesale electricity prices that's occurring within those entities. So that's a, a direct impact on return. And then there's probably one other mechanic across the portfolio that has the smallest impact of the three that is important to mention nonetheless is a, a mechanism we call principal indexation. So to the extent that inflation spikes above a certain level, then there is an adjustment to the principal balance outstanding to effectively have a higher debt amount outstanding of which there is a higher level of income being generated as a result of, of interest accruing on that amount. So um, the 50% that we refer to is spread across those, those three metrics broadly. You very usefully publish some sensitivity analysis when you're talking to your investors. Uh, in terms of the overall portfolio, what is the sort of impact of a 1% change in interest rates and a 1% change in inflation to the extent that you can quantify that? I mean, is that, is that a sensible question to ask? It is absolutely. We do present those sensitivities in our annual report and our interim reports. They are presented as infrastructure projects and long-term projects that we are valuing off the back of discounting long-term cash flows. So inflation is a long-term assumption in those models. And when we apply those sensitivities, we're effectively applying an increase or decrease to inflation over that long term. So our base case inflation assumption is the ABR forecast in the, the next four or five years. And then long-term, we take 2.5% RPI, 2% CPI. So you're effectively adding 1% or half a percent to all of that, which compounded over 15 or 20 years, which is the, the life of these projects, can give you fairly significant differences. I think in reality, the way the market works is that there might be variance year on year. Some years will be higher than our current base case, some years will be lower. So I think the the sensitivity we don't publish is what if inflation this year is half a percent higher than our the OBR forecast, for example. And that's something we can certainly look to build into to future analysis and sensitivities. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but um, can certainly provide the reference in the annual report to the extent that's, that's helpful. Let's talk then about renewable energy, because that's still the biggest part of your portfolio, about two thirds, I think, of your total portfolio. Obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, there's been a lot of change in this market as well. We had the the fact that the original subsidies have been ended uh, to some extent, and we've had a new energy uh, policy from the government earlier this year, and then we've had now had the energy levy introduced as well, extended to electricity generators, which is one that most affects you. So what has been the, uh, the net impact of all that on your portfolio of loans? Has it made it more or less attractive in your terms, and does it incentivize you to diversify more or to add more to renewable energy, perhaps, in uh, in one outcome? So I think there's a num- number of things that have happened um, in terms of energy policy generally. I think the, the headline has been that energy prices have been high, and that has been a benefit to the portfolio. There's most significant nav uplifts that we've seen over the last 12 or 18 months have all been largely driven, or in most part driven, by increases to long-term electricity price forecasts. So to that extent, it's been positive for the portfolio. Um, I think we have been naturally cautious, both as a debt investor, but also in terms of, of how we approach valuation generally, in how quickly we recognize those high prices and the sensitivities that we've applied to those to recognize that whilst prices have been high, they've also been very volatile. And therefore, there is an increase in risk to any point in time of evaluation, just given how much they're moving, how quickly. And particularly what's happened recently with the the government intervention in terms of the the profits levy, which I'll come back to, I think that was anticipated and has been factored into valuations prior to that coming in. I think there's probably a number of compete intentions, as is always the case in respect of energy policy. I think the need to balance security of supply, the green agenda and price continues to be 
drivers of energy policy. I think we've definitely seen a shift in the last probably 12 to 18 months in response to what's happened in Ukraine towards energy security as a priority relative to perhaps if you went back to two and a half years, a focus on the green agenda and driving decarbonisation. And given where price is, it's become a massive political issue, both in terms of fuel poverty, but also industrial competitiveness and how the government have and, and indeed need to further intervene in the market to address those points quite rightly. So what I think that means at a very high level is that we exist at a time of quite a high level of uncertainty, I'd suggest, in future electricity policy and how those different things play out. The government have put out a consultation called the Review of Electricity Market Arrangements. And that is the most significant review of our electricity market since the privatization of electricity markets and the new electricity trading arrangements going back to the 90s. So that's potentially a really substantive set of changes that will be implemented in our electricity system from 2025, 2026, which you know, some of the things being suggested in that are locational marginal pricing. So the price that is paid for electricity or that generators receive for electricity differs based on where the generation is relative to system constraints that exist around um, the UK. Another proposal is bifurcating the market into on-demand generation, so stuff that's available whenever you want it, like gas, or as available generation, which is more intermittent renewables that's available whenever the wind blows or the sun shines, and having two prices to really address the issue that we see today, which is that gas sets the marginal price and all generators benefit from that higher price, regardless of whether their cost base has, has changed. So I guess we've been in the position for the last probably 12 months or so where high prices that have been set by gas have meant that renewables in our portfolio have been capturing significantly higher prices. That effect is is weakened somewhat by the fact that we do have a hedging program across all of our underlying portfolio, whether we're a lender or, or effectively the equity, and that locks in prices two to three years out. So there's a, an effect where it will take time for those high prices to be realized. I think in terms of the shorter term impacts, so there's that, that wider review that I think will drive changes to the electricity markets over the medium term. I think in terms of the short term, we've obviously had the electricity generator profits levy. I think we had factored into our September valuation an assumption of what a windfall tax or price cap might look like. So I think we expect the impacts of the profit levy to be pretty insignificant in our portfolio, given how we've already valued the assets over the next three to four years. And I think the point probably I'd make finally is that even at the level that that levy was set at £75 a megawatt hour, that's still materially above, I think, any base case that we entered into when we made the investment decision relating to an asset. So I think overall, to answer your question, I think the dynamics we're seeing are positive for the generators in our, our, our portfolio. Valuing it has been a bit of a, a tricky balance over the last 18 months as policy and the market environment has been moving so quickly. But I think we've managed that well and, and we haven't seen material ups and downs in NAV in response to, to these various things as they occur. So what you would like, though, most of all, probably would be some degree of certainty about what the regime is going to be. We've had all these policy changes reacting to external events to some extent, but also were driven by budgetary concerns of the UK government, not least. <laughs> we have to mention those. And in your, you remain a UK-focused trust. You only invest in the UK, or essentially, and across the Irish Sea. But you still think that renewable energy is, is an attractive asset class to be in, driven by these long-term sources of potential return, which is basically... Uh, decarbonisation and continued use of energy by uh, by the developed and developing world. Yes, I would agree with that. I think the nature of what the underlying investments actually are within that theme, I think, may change. So historically, 
a lot of the focus of the decarbonisation investment sector has been wind and solar. And uh, I think we would point to the fact that a lot more needs to be done, both in electricity generation to look at how we get flexible, low carbon generation. And if you looked at the last consultation the government put out, the key words were flexible, low carbon. So it's an ability to match all that wind and solar with co-locating battery storage or co-locating wind and solar in the same place using hydrogen as a, a means to use surplus energy when it's being generated to, to produce another form of energy. I think we also need to do a huge amount more in heat and transport as part of the decarbonisation agenda. And looking at our portfolio as an example, there's a number of asset classes such as biomethane to grid projects that have opportunities to address decarbonisation of heat agenda or decarbonisation of transport agenda, where today they address the decarbonisation of electricity agenda. Um, so they fundamentally produce a green gas, which can be used in, in a number of different applications. So I think for me, that's where the interest and opportunities in the future lie, both recognising the fact we have a portfolio of, of nearly £700 million worth of renewables that has a core role to play in the decarbonisation journey. We're not going to achieve net zero in a relatively short time frame, 2050 in England, 2045 in Scotland and decarbonize our electricity generation sector by 2035 by switching all of the stuff that we've already built off. So we have to find ways of extending the lives of existing assets and repurposing the assets that we have today. And I think in terms of wind and solar, that's quite an easy thing to see in terms of other asset classes like biomass, anaerobic digestion, which have a higher operating cost base and perhaps are more reliant on the subsidy to, to pay its bills, then we do need other models to, to come into play. So I think that's the interesting area of optimizing our existing asset base, but then also how do we further invest in other complementary technologies like storage or look to repurpose assets to do other things where more opportunity will lie. In addition to the fact that I think it would be fair to expect a heat subsidy to replace the RHI in due course, we already have the Renewable Transport Fuel Certificate that I think promotes investment opportunities around decarbonisation, decarbonising fuel for transport. So lots of other areas, and I'd hate for people to think that more renewables means more wind and solar. We need more of that, and that will be really important. But there is a wider world out there that I think continues to diversify our exposures and continues to present attractive investment opportunities that, that this fund is well-placed to, to benefit from. And of course, the government has to pick this delicate line between trying to kind of even the playing field for consumers by introducing the windfall tax and, and meeting its uh, long-term decarbonisation objectives. They are in conflict as well, and they have to pick a path through that without putting you out of business or the people you lend to out of business. But in the short term, we have a couple of problems I put to you. One is we are in a recession, according to the Bank of England and the OBR, or at least technically a recession, and we're going to continue to be in recession for a while. What impact is that going to have on you? I can think of two ways. One is obviously on the demand for energy, um, but also in terms of potentially credit risk. I mean, there must be some credit risk out there during a recession. What was your experience during the pandemic? Was that an issue then? And what is your uh, expectation could happen now if we do go into a recession that lasts two years, as the Bank of England apparently is suggesting? Yes, I think my headline point would be that infrastructure is meant to be a resilient asset class that continues to perform through cycles. And I think historically, we've seen lots of evidence that that's true. I think that was true during the COVID pandemic for us. I think the investment portfolio we have has been focused on availability-based cash flows. So effectively, projects being paid for the asset being available to provide its services rather than the extent to which it is being actually used for its services. So if we take the example of our PFI portfolio, during COVID, a lot of the assets, whether it's hospitals or schools, actually were used in a very different way. Um, schools were shut for long periods of time. Hospitals had to largely repurpose large bits of them to, to address 
the pandemic issue, what we were paid and based on the availability of those assets remained constant through that period, notwithstanding the fairly significant changes that were happening at an underlying asset operational level. So I think that's a good example of where this asset class is resilient to those sorts of, of changes. And I think I would extend the same to a general recession. I think we can't ignore that suppliers, customers that ultimately our projects rely on, whether that's to provide fuel or to provide the operating services to those assets or to offtake the services provided by an asset, whether that's purchasing power or the offtake of services from a PFI portfolio, they are all being impacted. And I think the monitoring of the credit risk of all of the customers and suppliers that the projects rely on is a key part of our ongoing asset management activities at Gravis. Um, historically, we've worked with some very large, well-capitalized off-takers. Obviously, a, a large part, and by definition of this fund, has public sector-backed revenue, so is, is contracting with, with the public sector for at least a, a significant proportion of its revenue stream. So, the credit there, I think, is well-protected. In terms of suppliers, I think one example I pick up is anaerobic digestion, where fertilizer costs um, have gone up threefold. So, kind of more standard RPI link contracts don't really address that core issue. So, I think in those cases, we have to recognize where we've been doing very well as a result of higher energy prices and perhaps compensating suppliers to a greater extent, recognizing the challenges they're having and how critical they are to the supply chain that ultimately makes our asset work is, is a sensible approach in those cases. And that's what we've been looking at there. So I think we are very cognizant of, of the credit position of third parties that our assets rely on. And, and that's something we'll absolutely continue to monitor. But I think the headline I'd reiterate is that we think these asset classes will be defensive and ultimately will generate a stable income through recessionary periods, as it's the one we're going to be in for a period of time. That's all true, of course. But as you made at the point at the beginning, most of the things you do, or a lot of things you do, have some form of government guarantee or local authority government or local authority guarantee behind them. And as we know, the government is running into some issues to do with how much money it can borrow, how much it can spend, and so on. To that extent, is the opportunity set, do you think, for the kind of attractive deals that you've been getting, do you think that is narrowing somewhat? So I think put another way, and Jonathan, your question is, will the government continue to offer revenue support models to infrastructure? And I think the answer to that is they are. I mean, the CFD is the, the current mechanism that the government have to support low carbon electricity generation. And that's an interesting example because actually with where the CFD is clearing at the moment, it's actually subsidizing the government. So it's a net cash flow from projects to the government over the life of those projects, given it pays the difference between a strike price and the wholesale electricity price. And the wholesale electricity price is particularly high. So the compensation is to the government. So we can expect the government, I think, to make some fairly significant cash inflows as a result of that subsidy. And really what that subsidy does is it provides a 15-year fixed cash flow for the underlying projects. And that gives those projects an ability to raise a high level of leverage and, and have a high level of certainty of the cash flows during that period of time. So I think how the government subsidizes might change. And I think it recognizes that these things can work both ways. And actually, there's a value in certainty that uh, as well as just the absolute price level that people need to get to to pay back that capex and generate a return. So the CFD does seem to be a model that the government want to extend elsewhere. I think we're also looking at other models like the regulated asset base. And, and I know that's been muted in respect of um, small-scale nuclear. It was a model that was used for, for Thames Tideway the first time I think it was really used in respect of a single project. Um, so that's an interesting scheme where, again, the government are looking at providing a very bespoke level of support in certain areas to address perhaps some areas that the private market is not well-placed to take risk or manage risk or would price that risk um, to the extent it becomes inefficient. 
So the nature of support, I would argue, has changed. Support is still there and we are still seeing opportunities. And I think perhaps a final point I would make is that we've been in a world probably over the last five or six years where interest rates have been very low. The fund was set up 12 years ago in an environment where the 15-year guilt was at around 4.7%. So perhaps we're going back to that world and perhaps we're going back to a world where we're looking at more core infrastructure senior debt structures in operating assets because we can be more competitive with our cost of capital relative to more commercial lenders or institutions that are funding these assets and just because rates have come back to us and whereas we've had to look at more perhaps subordinated structures more equity like risk more construction stage assets to to continue to support the return over the last six or seven years so so i think the fact that subsidies remain and the fact that the rate environment has moved perhaps in our favor from a risk perspective um i think are positive things for us well, that's interesting. Yes, I'm sure that's right. You use as a comparator to your performance, you use uh, a corporate bond index, a UK sterling corporate bond index. And obviously, we've seen a big sell off in that market. But if you've got a significant portion of your revenues uh, effectively guaranteed by government, would you not expect to do better than the corporate bond index over time? Because where they are private sectors operators without as much security as you've got uh, from the counterparties you're dealing with. So whilst it's true that all of our projects have some form of public sector-backed revenue stream, I think it is important to recognise that there are operating projects that sit beneath those, and whether that's a wind farm that's exposed to how much wind blows or the fact that that asset continues to be able to operate and, and is maintained correctly, there's some very simple operational assets in our portfolio, solar projects, wind farms. There's some very complicated ones like waste to energy projects that have a, a team of people managing that asset 24 hours a day and multiple deliveries a day, multiple different interfaces and systems. So I don't think it would be necessarily fair to say it's government-backed revenues, therefore you should compare it with a, a public instrument. We do have to recognise that, yes, there's revenues come from the public sector, but there is a, a complicated, diverse portfolio of, of underlying operating projects that need to work every day and be maintained and and are subject to real world issues. So storms in Scotland, heavy rainfall in the last week has has impacted performance at a number of projects just because of, of the way that we have to capture that water and treat it to ends, for example. So so there are real world issues that we need to deal with. And I think that does mean that the risk is is different. Um, and I think that's why we don't look directly at a, a government credit. We're looking at more corporate benchmarks to, I guess, acknowledge that there's probably a step up in the risk as a result of, in our case, there is a portfolio of operating real-life projects. In the corporate case, I guess there's there's layers of risk on top of, of the risk-free rate that would be more akin to the government benchmark, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Before we talk about the other sectors, some of which are very interesting in your portfolio, let's just quickly talk about the dividend, because as you say, it's very important. That's one of the key attractions you're offering to investors is to offer what you hope is not only an attractive dividend, but also um, uh, one that is relatively secure. Certainly going into a recession, that's very important. And you pay a, a 7p dividend. You have been paying a 7p dividend. You got to that level. And at the moment, because your shares are sold off, the yield is actually slightly above 7% uh, because you're trading around 98p. I guess the question to ask is, first of all, I mean, you know you have the ability to go on paying that 7p dividend for the foreseeable future or even increase it. What is your dividend policy on the one hand? And secondly, perhaps you could explain to listeners this complicated issue about why you provide adjusted earnings per share as opposed to just ordinary reported earnings per share, which influences the degree to which the dividend is actually covered. Because if you look at the earnings per share, you can see during the pandemic, it wasn't actually covered according to reported earnings per share. But you would argue there's a better method, which is your adjusted earnings per share. So perhaps you could explain that so that uh, investors who come to look at this trust understand what they should be looking at uh, as far as you're concerned in terms of the dividend sustainability. 
So on the first point in terms of what is our dividend policy, we set the dividend target on an annual basis for this um, current financial year. Uh, it's set at 7p. And that's been, as you said, consistent in terms of last year. And when we, we base that dividend, and that's going back to early 2020, we did so with the expectation that we would maintain the dividend at that level for the medium term, by which I think we, we pointed to four or five years. That felt like the most sensible timeframe over which we could have any meaningful forecast over how the portfolio evolves and, and the wider market evolves. So that's the world we're still in, and nothing has has changed that would, I think, impact that analysis that was done probably three years or so ago now. In terms of how we think about dividend coverage, um, I think your point is exactly right. If you look at the standard statement of comprehensive income or P&L, um, what that does by virtue of the fact we're looking at the fair value of, of our assets. And the value of our assets is based on the discounted cash flows of those assets forecast over the remaining life of those projects. To the extent there's any change in that fair value, so for example, let's say power prices change or long-term expectations of inflation change, then those forecast cash flows change and that flows through to the fair value that we're recognizing today. So where you have long-term changes to forecasts, that's creating a PL movement in the current year that would flow through to earnings per share. Our view is that that's absolutely fair and valid way of, of valuing assets. But what that's showing you is how has the long-term value of those assets changed in that period. If we're looking about at dividend coverage, I think what's relevant to me is how much income have we actually generated in 12 months and um, how does that compare with the income that we've paid out by way of dividend? So the way we approach it in the alternative performance metric that you refer to looks at our underlying loan book, looks at how much interest has accrued under that loan book, and that's effectively the contractual right for income that has accrue to our benefit during a period of time. Um, we deduct from that the fund level costs, so the operating costs and the finance costs at a fund level to get to a, um, an adjusted earnings figure. And it's that figure that we're comparing with the dividends paid out by way of, of income. So in our view, that's the right metric because we're looking at how much income has come in by way of interest. And then we're looking at comparing that with income out to net of our costs by way of dividends. Just because that's the interest you've earned, it's not necessarily the interest you've actually received because some of it can be rolled up and added to the principal, as, as you said before. So it's not necessarily cash, but it is it has been earned rather than being actual cash in your pocket, so to speak. Correct. That's absolutely right. So a component of that interest accrued is paid in the period. A component is, is I guess, paid in kinds or picked. Um, and I think the key message is there is that you know, effectively what's happening there is we're reinvesting some principal that we receive back, so some repayments that we receive in the underlying portfolio to service that dividend. So it's a way of reinvesting the natural flow of capital we get back. And a component of that is entirely predictable and expected. A component is is unplanned, and that's where we might be having an issue with an underlying project that we need to address. Um, and certainly in the annual reporting accounts that are coming out in a couple of weeks' time, there's a, a fairly significant disclosure that, that will be presented on this particular point. There is also a component of the interest accrued that is just accrued in the period and hasn't become due. So if we have a six-month interest period from the 1st of October through to the 31st of March at the end of December, there'll be interest accrued that is accrued but hasn't become due because there's no payment obligation. So I think it's important to, to, to recognize those things. Um, I think the comfort investors can get is that an independent valuer, Mazars, looks at our portfolio on a quarterly basis. They set the underlying discount rates that are applied to value investments. But they're also looking at, as part of that valuation process, the extent to which those investments 
are serviced over the life of the asset. So if we are picking interest or rolling up interest, there is an assessment of, well, you can't do that into perpetuity at some point. The asset's ability to continue to pay that back is, is impaired. So that test occurs on a quarterly basis and we're, we're only picking interest and recognising the benefits of that where we have the ability to repay it. So, I mean, the, the question, of course, is, is the trust actually over-distributing? In other words, is, is it actually distributing more than it's, it's actually earned? And your argument or the board's argument is that the answer to that is no, you're not. Uh, even though you may not be uh, covered on a, on a conventional earnings basis. That would be the summary of it. Correct, yeah. Uh, how we look at the income that we've generated versus what's paid, I think we are an income fund. So we should, in my view, be paying out the vast majority of, of what we earn. And that's that's what we do. Okay. So let's move on and talk about some other sectors. I'll start with the one where there's been some negative stuff, and then we'll talk about the more positive ones. Now, the negative one is social housing. You have invested in social housing. You're one of the first to invest, I think, by lending to uh, providers of social housing, which again are guaranteed to some extent either by uh, government or local authorities or in some cases uh, private sector ventures. But there's quite a lot of controversy around this area and uh, you've recently done something interesting to try and perhaps protect yourself against some of the potential downside. Can you explain what the issue is? We've seen it affect some other investment trusts where they've had issues about how reliable effectively you're, you're, uh, they're uh, owning assets rather than lending money in some cases. You're lending money to operators. Um, but tell us what the issues are around social housing and where you're positioned in regard to that. You have a sort of between 10 and 15% invested in that area. People don't really understand what's going on. I think that's really the, sure. the issue. Yeah. You're very happy to. So I think the type of social housing we're talking about here is supported social housing. So it's providing social housing to individuals with a care requirement as part of their housing requirements. So um, typically this would involve living as part of either a very bespoke accommodation. So where that accommodation has largely been designed to suit the needs of a specific individual with high acuity care through to housing units that leave people to live largely independently, but might have some healthcare provision as part of that. So this is a combination of purpose-built housing or the conversion of existing housing stock. And that's what our funding has, has ultimately gone to provide. I think in terms of the issues with the sector, I think they've been born out of the fact that a lot of the registered providers or housing associations that operate in this space have been relatively small historically. This is a, a type of care requirement, so effectively bringing those individuals that require care out of healthcare institutions into their own independent living as part of the community. I think that model has evolved in recent years. I think there's some demonstrated healthcare benefits associated with doing that for those individuals. There's also some demonstrated cost savings um, of doing that relative to housing people in institutions. So I guess that shift has occurred. And I think in response to that, we've seen a, a number of relatively small registered providers enter that space. Um, and in some cases, that's an individual or group of individuals trying to do a good thing for their community or for a specific individual. And it's grown from there. So ultimately, you know, we funded and we were one of, as you say, one of the first to fund this sector going back to 2014, the redevelopment of existing properties or the, the bespoke build of properties in this space. Yeah. I think rolling forward a few years, probably going back um, two or three years now, I think as this sector grew, the regulator of social housing that oversees all social housing activities started becoming more interested in this sector. And I think the observations they made in assessing a number of the registered providers that had grown to a certain point were, were twofold. I think the first was they observed that governance wasn't what they expected it should be in some of those uh, organizations. And that, I guess, goes to the, the people, the processes, the systems that existed in those places. And I think that, in my view, was born out of they'd grown very quickly and, and had 
come from a place of, in most cases, very good intent and ultimately needed to, to become more corporate in the way they went about doing things. Um, so governance was one issue. The second was relating to financial viability. And that recognises that you have a relatively small entity, so a registered provider with not a significant balance sheet. And the business model of that entity is to enter into long-term leases for the properties and ultimately the properties that we're exposed to and have funded. So long-term liability on one side, and then those entities are relying on the continuation of housing benefit and the continued increase of housing benefit by inflation in order to service their liabilities under those leases. So there's a mismatch there that the regulator, I think, correctly identified and made the comment that the entities that sat in the middle, the registered providers, which ultimately is the entity they're concerned about regulating and ultimately concerned about protecting the residents that are housed associated with those entities, had this mismatch and ultimately didn't have the ability to weather substantive changes to housing benefit, which is fundamentally, in their view, uncertain moving forward. I think for us, this has never been a financing that's based on the balance sheet strength of the underlying registered providers. We've always looked through to the underlying pot of housing benefits. That's a, a central government pot. It's historically been very well protected. It's been inflation linked historically. And our views politically would be quite sensitive to start changing that pot, particularly given the type of individual that it's seeking to provide for, um, but also the, the cost benefits and the, the healthcare benefits that I referred to earlier. So that was a thesis of our investment. I think the what we've seen since then is that I think a lot of the governance concerns have been addressed or that the registered providers that we're working with are in the process of addressing them. And I think that's really looking to changing the, the governance structures in terms of people, processes, systems. Um, in some cases, we've seen registered providers work with third parties to, to bring expertise in. So governance, I think, is fundamentally addressable. The financial viability point is perhaps harder to see because those structures are established. It's a way that they've raised financing and they can't be changed overnight. I think we have seen the market shift in this of new financing provision. And I think there are kind of escape valve mechanisms in new leases. Uh, leases aren't as long dated in length that I think gives some protection in line with what we think the regulator wants to see to avoid that mismatch between long-term liability and uncertain housing benefit coming in. I should add that we haven't been funding new investments into this sector probably since um, 2019 or so. Um, and that's a result of, I guess, those regulator challenges that I've just described, but also I think the fact that that market has become more competitive. We've seen other funders come into that sector and I think they now compete at a cost of capital that would be below where we think that sector or those investments are attractive. So we haven't made new investments in this space for a number of years. I think the comment that you made earlier is is the, the refinancing that we completed relatively recently, which reduced our exposure to the sector by about £40 million. I think where we sit today, our exposure to social housing is around 11% of the portfolio. And we think there's opportunities to, to optimise and potentially reduce that further in the future. And I think that's a, an opportunity that um, is driven by ability to bring some more senior debt against those returns to increase the yield. It's the lowest yielding bit of our portfolio. It has good inflation linkage, which we like going into our discussion earlier. And actually, in terms of the underlying RPs that we're exposed to, we're largely comfortable with how those are performing and, and like the investments that we've made. So um, it's not born out of a fundamental dislike of, of what we've got, neither the sector more generally. I think my observations would be there's some opportunity to optimise yield that we've taken and the sector generally in terms of new investments is probably less attractive from a risk-adjusted return perspective. Right. So what is the typical length of the commitments you've made in this area? So it varies between 20 out to 40, 40 years. That is quite a long 
it's a long-term business. So therefore, unless you can refinance, you're locked into those particular providers uh, effectively Correct. for a long time, basically. So that issue is, is still there. Has that been reflected in the way you value those assets? So I think it has. I mean, I, th- I think Mazars, who set the discount rate and performed that valuation for us, I think have reflected the market concerns. They look at the benchmarks that they see elsewhere from the listed peer group that also invest in this sector, but also the wider private market peer group that also aware invest in this sector. So yes, we think it's been appropriately reflected in the valuation. I'd maintain that you know, the portfolio as a whole is one of the best paying bits of our portfolio. It's, uh, it is underpinned by what has been a very stable inflation-linked housing benefit pot, ultimately doing uh, providing a really good thing from a healthcare and cost perspective to individuals that are in need of it. So I wouldn't want to be too negative on that, this bit of our portfolio. And indeed, you know, there haven't been material downward revaluations as a result because of those characteristics. It, it, it's remained a, a strong paying and I think a good bit of our portfolio from a valuation, but also a social benefit perspective. Right. I mean, I suppose the only point is that the share price is set by supply and demand. And if investors' sentiment has turned against the sector, that might to some extent, have an impact on the way that your holdings in that sector are valued by the market, not by you, but by the market. And so far, the other investment trusts have been affected by these issues have not managed so far to convince the uh, the market that actually it's an irrelevancy. So I I guess that is an issue. Well, let's turn to more interesting things. I mean, I don't want to overemphasize the potential sectors where there's been trouble. Um, Let's look at some of the other sectors. You made the point as the oldest things you've been investing in mature and maybe potential returns come down or potential opportunities come down. You have been looking to new sectors and uh, you're looking to digital infrastructure, looking to battery storage, you're looking to one or two other things, uh, hydrogen, for example. Uh, Tell us uh, what your approach to those sectors are and which ones do you think have the most potential to um, perhaps produce higher returns than uh, some of the maturer sectors now? Yeah, I think the pipeline is a really interesting bit and it's the thing we, we spend a lot of time on in terms of looking at new investment opportunities. I think historically, the approach we've taken to try and capture what in our view is an enhanced risk-adjusted return is to try and get into sectors early before those sectors mature and suffer from, I guess, risks being better understood as just deployment of assets occurs, but also increased competition driving uh, financing costs down. So that continues absolutely today. I think the sectors that you mentioned are all absolutely relevant in the pipeline. Um, I think we can probably divide the pipeline into where there's follow-on opportunities in the existing portfolio. And this perhaps slightly comes back to a point we discussed earlier around just how do we optimize the existing portfolio of assets in the context of that net zero transition and the fact we need to do a lot more, both in the areas we've invested in, but also other areas. I think areas like flexible generations in the battery storage example that you mentioned, I think there is an opportunity for us to look at lending into that sector in a slightly different way. I think there is an increasingly well-established commercial bank approach to lending into those sectors. Given where rates have moved to, I think we can now compete with that and I think potentially offer a slightly different lending proposition to developers or existing operators that is attractive and potentially provide slightly higher loan to values on debt, but in our view takes an entirely appropriate risk for the return we can get on that. So I think storage is a key uh, and flexible generation coming back to where I think, you know, that if there is a focus in the UK electricity market over the, the next decade, it needs to be around low carbon flexibility to address both the security of supply objective, but also the decarbonisation objective. And if we can do that cheaply as well, it addresses all three. So I think co-locating storage with existing assets and co-locating wind and solar on the same sites, looking at how we can incorporate hydrogen into our projects. And there's two examples in our portfolio, one where we have um, two wind farms that are quite heavily curtailed because of where they're located on the grid. Can we use that excess electricity to drive an electrolyzer to 
produce a green hydrogen and there's a neighboring demand for that hydrogen that, that could act as the off-taker. Similarly, on the anaerobic digestion examples I mentioned earlier, um, our ability to perhaps change the, the revenue mix of those projects by doing different things. So rather than using gas to, to produce electricity, perhaps we could export that gas directly to the grid or perhaps we could even produce hydrogen from that biomethane stream to another source of green hydrogen. So I think uh, we're monitoring these markets and I, I wouldn't for a moment say that the hydrogen market um, is well established uh, and I think we need to, to try and identify opportunities that are attractive and that fit our risk profile and where we can apply that project finance based principle of investing that we've, we've used historically and has been used in infrastructure more generally to manage risk and, and identify attractive <laughs> returns. Um, so those sectors, I think digital infrastructure is an interesting one. I think it is there's certainly sectors of that that are pretty congested um, if we're looking at uh, laying roads or laying cables down roads in London. I think um, that's probably an oversupplied market, but there are potentially pockets of digital infrastructure that are attractive and are underserved today. And I think it's those areas that we'll be focusing on. Um, I think that hasn't been an area that's benefited hugely from government revenue support. I think there's been a fair amount of grant funding going into that sector, which is a slightly different way of the government supporting projects. The last investment we made is probably worth touching on. I think it's a really interesting diversifier going to a point I made earlier, was um, the lease finance, so effectively providing debt to finance London-based taxi fleet operator to acquire some electric taxis, um, a fleet of 50 electric taxis that are now in use around London. And uh, and that's kind of a vehicle financing type structure where we're using kind of the upfront government support as the basis of the, the public sector backing. So that's a an interesting diversifier into a new area. And I think hopefully we can do more in with that particular borrower, but also in the, the electric vehicle and, and transport space generally. So those are exciting opportunities, potentially. And I guess the issue for shareholders is they come to look at this trust, as we said before, has a 7% yield. It's performed well in NAV terms since launch, you know, slow but steady. And But I guess the question always is, well, if the nature of what you're doing is changing, has the risk profile of what you're doing changed? Is that an issue you feel the need to address? How would you answer that to say what we're going to do in future is going to be slightly higher return, higher risk or same return, same risk or the opposite? How would you answer that point? I think it's a very valid question. It's a question we've often had to address for investors as we've moved into new areas. And I think we've been challenged when we've done that. And I think I'd come back to it is an explicit objective of this fund to diversify across a range of different asset classes. And we at Gravis have an excellent track record of getting into asset classes early and, and investing successfully in those. So whilst I can't pretend we or indeed anyone has a huge track record in hydrogen, I think what I can point to is the fact that we've done it lots of times before and our approach to getting into new asset classes is, is a successful one. Does the risk change? I think ultimately that will be dependent on two things. When I think about investment risk, I think it's a, a function of what's the project, so what's the actual asset you're investing in and how risky is that? So effectively, how certain are you about the cash flows that are going to be generated by that project over its life? And then the secondary consideration is how do you as an investor get access to those cash flows? And that's where I think we have the opportunity to enter new sectors through a debt structure. And so we have capital structure protection that means that we're not as exposed to volatility in those cash flows. And if we look at anaerobic digestion or biomass as examples of where we've taken that approach historically, they were new asset classes. When we started investing in those assets in 2013, 2014, we invested debt. In some cases, we've had to step into those assets and take control of them um, where things haven't gone as, as we expected, but largely we've preserved value for the fund in that process. We have around 80 million of anaerobic digestion, 150 million of biomass that works really well in our portfolio today that's all operating 
to a good level. And I don't think there are many investors that can say that. And I think that's a function of our approach of getting into new asset classes with, with capital structure protection as a lender. Um, and we're less exposed to the potential variability in that. So I guess to the challenge that I think you fairly put across, we will try and preserve risk and maintain risk at the same level it has been, in our view, historically. Um, and I think the way we'll do that is where we acknowledge that there might be an risk associated with a new sector will seek more capital structure protections and more senior debt structures, perhaps more investment in operating assets rather than taking construction risk. Um, and the portfolio will always be a balance from some things that are more risky than others. And, and the return will reflect that. But on an overall basis, it's a 1.1 billion portfolio. It's not going to change overnight. There'll be a natural change and reset over time, but we're not going to start chasing new sectors to try and drive higher returns. We're going to maintain the same approach to return we've taken historically and make sure that the investment structure and the asset class combined is an appropriate reflection of that return and, and risk. So my final question really is, obviously, the shares are trading at a discount at the moment. Do you have ambitions to issue more shares and, and raise more money? You have a pipeline. If the shares remain at a discount, to what extent can you uh, finance that, either through uh, your own existing debt facilities or through repayment of, of loans or selling assets. So what's the outlook as far as that general issue is concerned? I think it's a constant assessment that changes over time. I think that's our job as the investment advisor to, to the board. We can't constantly looking at the new opportunities for investment, for monetizing assets through disposals, for how we use our revolving credit facility. And the cost of that has materially changed over the last six to eight months in terms of where bank rates are. So that assessment has changed. So it's a moving target. Would I like to grow the fund? I think our view and the board's viewers would do that to the extent we could. So obviously, the, the shares would have to be trading at a different place. But also, I think we would have to find the opportunities and for that pipeline and share issuance to be accretive to dividend coverage and, and existing investors' interests. Uh, the last time we raised capital was 2018. There was a period of time where absolutely the conditions of the share price were right to raise capital, but we didn't because we weren't confident enough about the deployment potential at, at that point in time. So if we are in the position to, and we're confident about the deployment potential to, then I'm sure that we would. In the meantime, it's a, a juggling act between the cash that comes back, the opportunities we have to generate cash and how we use our revolving credit facility. And that's a, a constant ongoing dynamic assessment. So that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for your time, Phil. It's been a very interesting conversation about this interesting specialist subsector, if you like, of the infrastructure space in the investment trust world. I'd like to thank you. That was Phil Kent, the lead fund manager of GCP Infrastructure, ticker GCP. And that brings us to an end of this particular Master Investor podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been a Master Investor podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website, masterinvestor.co.uk.